If you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Nehemiah chapter 5. So Nehemiah chapter 5, welcome to week 11 of our renovation series that has us walking through Ezra and Nehemiah. We are now in Nehemiah, and of course, just to recap, the book of Nehemiah tells the, the story of the return of God's people to Jerusalem to rebuild broken down walls. But this isn't just a physical returning to Jerusalem. This story is returning to God. It's people returning to God's ways, what the Bible calls repentance, which means this story is for all of us because this story is about all of us, meaning we've all had moments of rebellion and we've all had moments of probably absolute or close to absolute ruin where we have messed things up that bad. And thankfully, we've all had opportunity to return, rebuild, to repent and be restored. And thankfully, 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 we have a God that pursues rebellious people. And in pursuing those rebellious people, he offers us means, a way for us to return to him. And thankfully, when you think about Israel, they were given a, the means to return to God through a decree of foreign kings. So foreign kings made these decrees that allowed the people of, of Israel to return to Jerusalem. We are given the means to return to God through even more than a decree through the death, burial, and resurrection of the king of all kings by which we come to God. And so what we know is that Nehemiah was a reformer that God raised up to help restore what had been broken down. And God did an amazing work in and through Nehemiah. And it brought reformation to a city. It brought reformation in a people. And so what we have seen so far in Nehemiah, we've seen the, the passion of Nehemiah, that God broke his heart over broken down walls and the condition the people were living in. We have seen several prayers of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. We've seen the preparation of Nehemiah as Nehemiah went around the walls that had been broken down. We've seen the people of Nehemiah, so people from all walks of life united together based on the purpose that God had given them. We've seen the progress of Nehemiah, the building being underway, each person doing their part in the building project. And now, last week, we saw the problem of Nehemiah, opposition from without and somewhat from within. And this morning, we are going to continue the story and move from opposition without to unthinkable suffering from within. And just think about the pain in your life. Maybe it's past pain or maybe it's present pain in your life and John MacArthur frames it this way he says frankly the deepest pain you'll ever know is not physical it's not material it doesn't have to do with our physical body it doesn't have to do with our material or economic or circumstantial life patterns hear this the greatest pain we will ever know is relational it is the potential of people to devastate us, to destroy us, to abuse us. And apart from internal personal guilt, which has to be the greatest pain, but that is personal and internal, the most serious pain we suffer in the world comes from relationships. He says this, no disease is as painful as rejection. No disease is as painful as false accusation. No disease is as painful as misrepresentation, betrayal, and hatred. So let's dive in this morning and see Israel struggling in the midst of suffering that came from within. 
If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word, and we're going to read all of chapter 5, so 19 verses, and let us begin. Now there arose a great outcry of the people of their, and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said that, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and their percentages of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them from their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also perceived in the work, or persevered, excuse me, in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Lord, we just thank you for what we just read. And Lord, we know that there are times where we find ourselves in the midst of suffering. And many times, as we just heard, it's from relationships. And Lord, we pray that today we would see all that you would have us to see, to know all that you would have us to know, to walk in, God, the ways that you would have us to walk. To speak, O oh God, for your people, we are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the saying goes, and please help me out with this, if it's not one thing, it's another. And so here in chapter 5, it's another. It's another thing. And it's difficult and it's discouraging enough to have to face external oppositions that come as we serve the Lord. But when the enemy is from within, we often are blindsided, the pain feels unbearable, and the damage can feel irreparable in our lives so chapter 5 is certainly not the highlight book of or the highlight of the book of Nehemiah there is no building really in this chapter the enemy of greed and selfishness has now infiltrated the camp so what's happening here is that as the people of God are working together on the walls the officials start to take advantage of their own people and in their power their self-interest begins to take over and they begin basically, they start to cheat their brothers and sisters, even making slaves out of them. And so what I see, I see in this picture the constant temptation. Let me just put it on us. The constant temptation in our own lives to do what is best for us, to build our own kingdoms, to look out for our own self-interest, even to use other people to benefit ourselves. How sinful we can sometimes be, and often we're not even aware of it. Often we, we are left in the dark of our own motives. And Nehemiah 5 should open our hearts to the sinfulness, first of all, in us, to our tendency towards selfishness, to our tendency towards using other people for our gain. And oh, that we need God to change that in our hearts and lives and think about this when we read chapter 5 the work stopped because of the strife among God's people and please hear this when we are fighting one another as the people of God let me tell you two things that aren't happening number one we're not fighting the real enemy and number two we're not doing the work that God called us to so when we're fighting each other we're not fighting the true enemy and we're not doing what God has called us to do so what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack three, what I believe, fundamental truths from this chapter and really from the whole word of God that we see here. First of all is this. Our cries come before the Lord. Our cries come before the Lord. In verse 1, we read the word, a great outcry of the people. Then in verses 3 through 5, you see on the screen it says, There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. We are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and it's not in our power to even help. So this chapter begins with a crying out. The word is outcry. It's used in scripture as basically a 911 cry from someone's heart who finds themselves in a desperate situation. And there are many circumstances in our lives that lead us to cry out to God with all of our hearts. Yet using this chapter as a gauge, there are, there are two instances that we just read that led the people to cry out. The first, they cried out because there was an absence of righteousness. There was no righteousness there. The word outcry is the same word used in Exodus 2 when the people, the people of God, Israel, found themselves in bondage in Egypt. And they cried out to God because of the heavy yoke of their slavery. 
This word is also used, I believe, in Exodus 32 or 33 when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the people, of course, instead of enjoying the freedom that God was giving to them, they were taking on, again, the yoke of idolatry. And Moses, when he came down, cried out to God. The question for us is, do we cry out in the absence of righteousness? Do we cry out? Do we even recognize unrighteousness in our own lives or have we become experts at ignoring it and what i mean by that is this listen we are oftentimes we are very in tune to the unrighteousness in other people what we're very bad at is recognizing that own unrighteousness in us oh that god would open our eyes to see any absence of righteousness in us but then they cried out because of wretchedness so Jerusalem was now a place of wretchedness. wretchedness. It was a place of misery. It was a place of hopelessness. These people had been building the wall that God called them to. They weren't a lazy people. They were a faithful people. Yet doing the will of God had been costly for them. Let me tell you why. Because of all the work on the wall, they had basically ignored their fields. They weren't able to go back home and work the fields Therefore, because of neglected fields and now because of a famine, they had nothing. Just walk with me through the first five verses. They had too many mouths to feed. Therefore, they mortgaged all of their possessions in order just to get food. They also had to pay taxes on the land to the king. So they had to borrow money to pay the king on land that was no longer theirs. And now on top of it all, the most horrific thing that is happening is that they are giving their sons and daughters to be slaves in order to guarantee that they can eat. The poor, the powerless are suffering and the situation even gets more desperate because the most horrific part of all of this is who it is that's taking them into slavery. It's not the neighboring nations, it's their own people. Their own people are doing this. Their own brothers are exploiting the most vulnerable in their own community. And do you know what's unbelievable about this? Why had they been kicked out of the land in the first place? They'd been kicked out because of disobedience. And here they've come back to the land and they're right back at it again. They're doing the exact thing that God told them not to do. And it begs the question that one commentator asked. He asked this question, what's the use of a rebuilt Jerusalem without a holy people to dwell in it? And just think about how they're breaking the law of God. God, as you might expect, or maybe as you might hope, had actually already spoken in the Torah, in the law, concerning this very issue. In fact, let me give you two references. In Deuteronomy 23, 19, God said, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. And then in Leviticus 25, 35, it goes into more detail. God said, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him. So listen, it's not just that they're doing what they're not supposed to do. They are. It's that they're doing the exact opposite of what God had told them to do. Hear this in light of what God had done for them. God had delivered them given them freedom and how do they use their freedom to enslave others 
The Bible says in Galatians 5 for us today, the Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We've been set free for freedom. Therefore, let us not go back to slavery and let us dare not enslave anyone else. And let me just say this today. Maybe you're here this morning and you are in a place of desperation. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're in a place that lacks righteousness. Maybe you're in a place that you just can't control. Maybe you feel like you're in a place of total wretchedness or you just feel hopeless where you are. Maybe you even feel taken advantage of. Let me just say this. Let me remind you this morning, remind all of us this morning, hear this. God hears your cries. He hears your cries. Every time you cry out to him and say, your kingdom come, your will be done, there is a response from the God of heaven. He hears. He responds. God is not silent. He's not silent to our needs. He's not silent to what we need most in those situations. Never, never forget our cries come before the Lord. Yes, Nehemiah heard the cries, but ultimately it was God who was hearing these cries. But then secondly, here's the second truth. Our wisdom is in the fear of the Lord. So our wisdom is really found in the fear of the Lord. We read this, as you see on the screen in verse 9. So I said, Nehemiah said to the people, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. And then in verse 15 and 16, he says, Because of the fear of God, I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. I immediately think of Proverbs 1-7 that tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. And what we learn here is that the overriding issue is that the people had lost their fear of God. In fact, Nehemiah stands before the people and he says, you don't fear God like you should. And listen, when it comes to the subject of the fear of the Lord, the Bible speaks of the fear of God 295 times in Scripture. Scripture speaks of us fearing God, fearing his name, fearing his law, fearing his word. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, the Bible proclaims that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to those who drink deeply of it. And if you drink deeply of it, you will have the blessings not just in this life, but even more in the life to come. However, the Bible also says if you reject the fear of the Lord, you will end up facing the judgment of the Lord. And here's the, the point I want to make is that the believer's fear is in our reverence for God. Not that we're afraid that God's standing behind every corner jumping out going, boo. No, we're, we're in awe and reverence of him. Let me give you a, a scripture, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. It says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. And then it says this, with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. So the reverence and the awe is exactly what the fear of God means for Christians. This is the motivating factor for us to surrender ourselves to the creator of the universe. And think about this in two different ways. 
The first way to think about this is this. When you lack fear of God, you often become faithless. When you lack fear of God, you often become faithless. And just think about what the people are doing. They have returned to a land that God gave them for free, and now they're using it to make themselves rich, even exploiting their own people. They had been brought back from slavery, and they're now making slaves of their own brothers and sisters. They had quickly lost the fear of God. And, of course, this brought righteous anger to Nehemiah. Notice that Nehemiah didn't get angry and just tell them all off. No, Nehemiah got angry, and he said, first of all, I had to compose myself. Because here's what I know. Yes, the Bible tells us, in our anger, we should not sin. Here's what the Bible doesn't always make clear. Maybe you don't get, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. It's so hard for us to do. Because, here's the deal. Most of our anger is not based on God's kingdom. Most of our anger is based on our kingdom when, hear this, when our will isn't done. When our will isn't done, we get angry. Most of our anger is based on not, not God's wants, it's based on our wants. Or most of our anger doesn't happen in the spirit of God, it happens in the spirit of flesh. But there's a godly anger that should grip every single one of us. Meaning, when we see the reputation of God being tarnished by the people of God, we can know that there's no longer any fear of God among those people. Did you know that whenever the church begins to act just like the world, guess who notices first? It's not the church. The world notices first. Because even though, even though the world might hate us for our views and our stances, the world knows that we should be different. The world knows there should be a difference about what we claim because we claim that Jesus makes a difference. And so when that difference isn't displayed in the way that we act and the decisions that we make, the world quickly notices. And they don't just mock us, they mock God. Yet the better alternative is this. When we truly fear the Lord, it will lead to faithfulness. We'll be faithful. And the people, think about this. The people in being confronted, they quickly begin to fear the Lord. There is confession. Then there's repentance. It's not just saying, I'm sorry, and then moving back to the way you were living. No, it's, I'm sorry, and therefore we're going to do something about the slaves that we have taken in. We're going to do something about all the money that we have stolen from you. Let me just say this, and please hear this. We know that repentance is a 180-degree turn. But true repentance is not the return to status quo. True repentance isn't, I ask God for forgiveness. He takes away all the consequences of my sin, and I return to live just like I was living before. That is not true repentance. The outcome of true repentance, hear this, is new obedience and it's a recommitment, a renewed commitment to walking in newness of life. That is what true repentance is. And so here in repentance, the people, they turned from their sin and they made things right. And this was truly the fear of the Lord. Oswald Chambers put it this way. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. Yeah. And then, 
William Eisenhower, in an article entitled Fearing God, he wrote these words. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment over my sin, but he forgives me nevertheless. And then he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you fear the Lord? Let me say this, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The greatest evidence that you fear the Lord is that you are walking in obedience to the Lord. The greatest evidence that we fear the Lord is that we are walking by his grace in obedience to the Lord. And let me just also kind of take this in a different direction. Maybe today you are in sin and you are running away from God. Maybe you're running away from God in sin because you say you fear the Lord. Let me just say this. That is not fear the Lord. That's mocking the Lord. If we truly understand the fear of the Lord and we truly understand who we are and who God is, here's how we fear him. Not from running from him, but running to him. And in running to him, praise be to God, he runs to us. And he grabs us in his arms and he whispers or even shouts to us, you are mine. You are mine. Oh, that we would understand that the fear of the Lord is full of peace. It's full of security. It's full of hope. The fear of the Lord keeps us near to the merciful heart of God, who is our fortress, our refuge, our sanctuary. He is our security and hope. Again, our life. Isaiah 8, 13 says this, the Lord of hosts, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread and he will become your sanctuary. If he is your fear, he becomes your sanctuary, your dwelling place. Oh, that we would understand the wisdom it is to fear the Lord. And then number three, our generosity points us to the Lord. Our generosity points us to the Lord. And let me explain this. Look at verses 17 and 19. You see on the screen that Nehemiah writes, there were at my table 150 men. So either this, either Nehemiah had a really big table or these were some really little people. I'm going with, I think, really, really, really big table. Like you think your dining room table is big. I mean, this is the biggest of all tables. 150 men, Jews and officials, besides others who came from the nations that were around us. And he says this, Yet I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And then he says this, Remember me, or remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And we have seen time and time again already in the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah is concerned with God and God alone, yet his love for God always leads him to care for the hurting people around him. 
His love for God always leads him to care for hurting people around him. And this chapter ends with Nehemiah now as the governor of Jerusalem. For the next 12 years, he will serve as governor and he will give up his rights as governor. Meaning, he will give up his comforts, he will give up his pleasures, he will lay his benefits down for the sake of his brothers and sisters. Not only did he refuse to get as much as he could during his time in office, he was actually committed to giving away as much as he could. He invited the people to come to his table and eat. And this chapter ends with verse 19. I love verse 19. Nehemiah says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And maybe you hear that and maybe you think, is that Nehemiah being selfish? Like he's trying to get God to remember all the good that he has done? What, what's that about? But when you think about it, isn't that the way we should live? Meaning, shouldn't we all want to live for the day when we'll stand before God and because of the grace of God and because of his good hand upon us, which Nehemiah tracks many times already, because of that, we will hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear that on that day. And I guess that you want to hear that as well. No one, who wants to stand before God on that day and hear God say, you missed it. You weren't a good servant. You were selfish. You only lived for yourself. You were a self-serving individual. None of us wants to hear that. But I'm afraid some of us might. Let me, let me close this way. Yes, we think about this chapter and all the things that Nehemiah does, and it seems like Nehemiah is the hero. But the whole picture doesn't end with Nehemiah, meaning the ultimate point of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah is a type of or a foreshadowing of Jesus. So this is the exact thing that Jesus has done for us. So Nehemiah points us to Jesus, because Nehemiah feared the Lord, and Nehemiah was a man of integrity and grace, he did not conform to the cultural norms and the selfish advancement, the personal enrichment that many in authority often did. Isn't there something so attractive about seeing a person in a position of power who lays aside their rights I don't care if you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian. There is just something that draws us to humility like that. What a beautiful picture of humility. And this is a picture of Jesus. Jesus set aside his divine rights in order to come down to earth. Jesus did not come to us with a sense of entitlement, but he came to serve. Our verse for this week says this, he became he who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich in him. That is why he came. And Nehemiah, in his service, accomplished for the people what they could never accomplish for themselves, meaning Nehemiah gave them a place at a dignified table. And in a greater way, a far greater way. Jesus has accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And instead of seeking his own comfort, Jesus did everything necessary, hear this, to invite us all to come to his table. We're able to come to his table.
table. And maybe there is someone here this morning, maybe a few someones here this morning, that you believe the lie of the enemy, that you have sinned more too much for God to forgive you. And please hear this. Please hear me. Please, that is a lie because your sin is not greater than the grace of God. Your sin is not greater than the grace of our God. For every person in this room, hear this. Our God hears our cries. He hears us. Our wisdom, knowing what to do, knowing how to do it, is found in fearing the Lord. Reverence and awe of Him. And our generosity to others should always point to one who has been so generous to us. Let these truths touch our hearts this morning. Your tears matter. They matter to God. It is to your gain to fear the Lord and your generosity. Although it might be overlooked by others, it is not overlooked by God. God sees everything that we do and every motive by which we do them. The things that we do might be overlooked by the world, but praise be to God. God is taking notice. He is taking notice of all that we do. And let me just give one last truth this morning. I'll say this. This is in closing, whatever that means. In, in the midst of your service, all that you do in serving the Lord, serving your family, serving your home, serving your job, serving other people, in all of your service, you are never serving alone. You're never serving alone. Alone. In, Ma in Matthew, in Mark 10, 45, in fact, we're going to put this, the verse on the screen. Jesus told his disciples this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the secret to us, treasuring Christ, serving Christ, glorifying Christ, is that we are never doing it on our own. Jesus has come to serve us listen jesus did not come to be served by us he came to serve us he did not come to be helped by us he came to help us he came to serve us and that doesn't mean that we tell jesus what to do and because he's our servant he has to do it no jesus doesn't serve us by responding to our every wish and desire jesus serves us by giving us what we need most in every situation. And what we need most in every situation is him. In every situation that you are facing in your life, you might think the answer is medicine. The answer is another relationship. The answer is answers in this way or that way. No, the true need in every situation of our lives is him. We need him. More than help, we need him. More than having every answer, we need him. More than any earthly relationship that promises to complete us, we need him. More than tons of money in the bank or more than chasing titles and awards, we need him. We need him. We could do nothing apart from him. And let me just say this this morning. When we think about chapter 5, ultimately when when Jesus leads us into difficult places, as God had led Nehemiah into a very difficult place, and when Jesus places before us difficult things, God will enable us to do what he calls us to do. 
he will serve us. Meaning this, we look at situations and we go, how, how can I ever do anything about that? How can I help this? And what we need to realize is sometimes God is opening our eyes to see things and God is saying, this is how I want to serve you. I want to serve you in doing this. I want to serve you as you get to work here. We will never serve him alone. He will continue to serve us. Trust him to serve you even in the midst of suffering. What a promise we have. That not only did, did Jesus come to serve, when you look at Revelation, you know what it tells that Jesus is still doing? He's still serving. He's still serving. And he will serve us as a shepherd and we as his sheep forever. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward. And I want you to think about the suffering in your life. And more than that, I want you to think about the shepherd. And think about the goodness of our God, that he is near. And even in the midst of injustices around us, even in the midst of needs that are too great for us, our God is able. So let's pray. Father, we think about just this chapter so much injustice, so much wrong, so much, Lord, disobedience to you. That we have been set free by Christ for freedom. It is for freedom that we have been set free. Not to serve ourselves, as Paul says in Galatians. But to serve you, Lord, and to serve one another. God, help us not to overlook the unrighteousness in our own lives help us not to overlook the lack of fear of you that leads to faithlessness but help us to have a true sense of reverence and awe that leads to faithfulness Lord help us as Nehemiah to live for well done good and faithful servant and help us to know Jesus that you still live to serve us Anything you call us to do is your way of showing us, telling us how you want to serve us. We'll never serve alone. And Lord, we confess today. I pray, God, that our confession today, all of us, is that our greatest need, God, is you. Right now, in this moment, Lord, our greatest need is you. The world would tell us different, Lord, but your word tells us that we can do nothing apart from you. Therefore, what we need most in every situation, God, is you. Lord, thank you that you have promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. Lord, you are you're near. You're here. You're in us. Lord, work in and through us in ways that bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.